0: I'm Catherine Spearing, and this is Uncertain. Today's guest is Beth Allison Barr, author of *The Making of Biblical Womanhood: How the Subjugation of Women Became
1: Gospel Truth*. And this is the what happened in the 20th century with with biblical womanhood is that it's not only a practice that some people think is the way what the Bible intends, but it is actually tied to whether or not you are really Christian, almost, mm-hmm. or a faithful Christian. And so an inerrancy is not so much about believing the Bible. It's about believing a particular interpretation of the Bible.
0: Beth Allison Barr has a PhD from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is the Associate Professor of History and Associate Dean of the Graduate School at Baylor University. In the past year, I've been heavily studying abuse in churches. During this time, I have listened to the stories of hundreds of survivors of abuse, and my views on women in the church has drastically shifted. I no longer believe this is a matter of personal preference and open to interpretation. When the Bible is used to bar women from the room during key conversations, and women do not have a voice or agency when key decisions are made, it's not only unbiblical, It's dangerous. However, I wouldn't have been able to articulate this without the help of this book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, so I'm excited to share this interview with you. I'm also excited to share something we've been working on at Tears of Eden. Tears of Eden is a nonprofit providing a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. For the past couple months, we've been piloting our first online group of survivors, We meet once a month on Zoom to discuss trauma and the unique aspects of spiritual abuse. And then we've been continuing the conversation in a private Facebook group. We're piloting this group in hopes that we'll be able to make this accessible to anyone who needs it and wants it. In other news, we're also going to have our first virtual gala in September. We're in the process of putting this together now, and I'll give you more details as the date draws closer. This will be a focused time for sharing the work of Tears of Eden and what this organization is about and what we hope for in terms of caring for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you found the resources of Tears of Eden or the podcast helpful, I'd like to invite you to consider submitting a short video sharing your story. You can find more info about that in the link in the show notes, or you can email us at tearsofeden.org at gmail.com. Here is my interview with Beth Allison Barr. So, your book is just like exploding on Instagram, it's making a a huge impact. How have you been receiving that? How is that landing for you?
1: Well, the good news is that I have a full-time job Mm -hmm. that's completely different. So it gives me, it's not something I have to focus on all the time, which I think has been very helpful, but it's also been, it's been really hard to keep up with what's going on with the book because it is, it seems to be moving so fast and I can't really keep up with it. So I've kind of given up. Trying to respond to things, I'm just like
0: (laughs) you're like I'm. Which is
1: probably which is probably good. I mean, most of it I'm getting overwhelmingly positive stuff, but then I'm also getting very cranky and some not so nice stuff. And then like yeah, and and then Mm -hmm. I have like the the Gospel Coalition that keeps putting out these really weird Mm -hmm. articles. Like today they put out one, and it seems to be like targeted at me without but well, like, not
0: referencing you
1: right yeah and it's like like today they put out a bizarre one that I was just like I don't even know what to, you know it was really strange and then of course Denny Burke wrote a whole article about me yesterday he was actually about sensible. you and about the book well he highlight this is strange too he highlights a podcast that I did with Kristen Dume and Amy Bird and Michael Bird and so he like puts a screenshot of it And then like writes the podcast and anyway, so he like highlights this podcast that we were in, which we're like, well, that's great. You know, now all these people are going to watch that podcast really good. But anyway, but yeah, but it was mostly about me that because my strategy is because I said in that podcast, I said, look, we just need to have more women in leadership roles because then people will see that women, you know, are good at this and can do this. And for some reason that triggered him as this is my stealth plan, you know, like to make people used to women and leadership I, but, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm not, there's nothing stealth about this.
0: <laughs> Pretty <laughs> overt. I wrote a book. So.
1: This So I know. I'm like, this is, anyway, so it's interesting. So I've been, but yeah.
0: Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was interesting to me. I'm so glad you wrote it and it's so breaking it down for me, just like breaking down the mindset in my own mind because I totally grew up in that world you mentioned Bill Gothard we were involved in Bill Gothard Mm. and for better or worse there are a lot of layers but for better or worse I just didn't fit the mold like the 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 wifey mold I just didn't and so it was never comfortable for me but there are many who for whom it is comfortable and that is you're surrounded by that to like break it down in your brain. It's very hard to not go like, there's something flawed in me. There's something wrong with me. And I think you mentioned in that book, like if I were not so proud or if I were more submissive, then, you know, this wouldn't be so hard. So you broke down a lot of really great things because just in this past year, because I did grow up in that biblical womanhood. And then I kind of morphed a little bit. I was in the PCA, I went to the PCA seminary, I worked in the PCA and at, and I was telling a friend the other day, I was like, I stayed, I don't know why I stayed. I know why I stayed, but I don't know, why did I stay? And so just in the past year, as I've been dealing with all of these abuse cases, mm-hmm. this reality that complementarianism and these churches where only men are elders and only men are pastors and only men have, the this vote and this special right. voice
1: yeah.
0: is so dangerous. It's just gotten it is. to that place, and I'm like,
1: yeah.
0: I cannot, in good conscience, describe conscience, ascribe to this anymore because it's just so dangerous. So- and that was all I had to go on until your book. So <laughs> oh, good.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah. First thing I just wanted to ask you about that. Was very mind blowing to me and just made so much sense. And I will probably re- remember it forever. Was this hermeneutic that is used to interpret verses about slavery versus the hermeneutic used to interpret verses about right. women? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: So, this is actually one of those places where we realize how narrow our vision is as evangelicals, and we also realize how white our vision is because this is something that black scholars have been talking about for years especially black feminist or black womanist scholars have been talking about for years and they have been complaining very vociferously that as white as black pastors have sort of tried to get in with the white evangelical crowd that they have imported this sort of gender roles into the black church and so then we have these black Christian scholars who are like what are you doing? If we are using this, you know, this hermeneutic to talk about slavery and to say that this is not what the Bible intended, how can we then turn around and say the Bible intends female submission based upon the household codes? I mean, they're they are pointing out very flawed logic and very flawed practice. But this is something that most white evangelicals are not reading black scholarship at all. And so it's something that we, and because we also have tried really hard to pretend that race isn't a problem for us. And we've tried really hard, you know, that we're past all. So we kind of just ignore those pieces in the new Testament. And we just focus on, you know, wives are to be submissive. And then we support that with second Timothy and with Titus Mm -hmm. two and then also, you know, with trying to tie it into creation order, which is also really bizarre to me, but we try to tie it back in with Genesis. And then also in Corinthians where it says, you know, that the husband is the head, that first Corinthians 11. And so we kind of, we take all those things together and we do that and then we ignore the slavery passage. And it's like, if we are emphasizing that wives are to be submissive, then that is the same logic that was used by slaveholders and by, you know, I grew up Southern Baptist. So Southern Baptist started by, by emphasizing slavery and using this, the household codes to argue that this was God ordained. And so it's just really, to me, it's just, this is just a very clear example of how we are so narrow in our vision, right? how narrow our interpretation is of the Bible.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and I just remember in seminary saying uh, being told, you know, the re- the Bible is not written to us. It's written for us. It's not written to us. You gotta right. take into account the specific cultural context in which this is happening. Yes. But those verses were never brought up. We never talked about them. <laughs> Did you really not? No. Nope, nope, really? Nope, nope. Nope. Never, never addressed. Never once. Yeah, there was a there was some discussion. I remember a discussion about the gender of God. And like Mm -hmm. what God's gender is and why God needs a gender and all that kind of stuff. I remember that discussion, not super clearly, but I remember that coming up and that, but obviously I remember it of, you know, thousands and thousands of hours into my head. So maybe we should talk about that, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. I, the next thing that Mm -hmm. is, I really wanted to ask you about was, so the ESV Bible, that was revelatory to me where the ESV Bible came from. Can you talk a little bit about the background of that and where that came from?
1: So this is actually surprising to me how many people really don't know this, because this is something that I've been paying attention to for a long time. And it, I think I was paying attention to it because it blew up at the time that I was starting my studies in medieval history. And I was, you know, I started studying these medieval sermons. And one of the first things that began to strike me about them was how they used gender inclusive language in terms of people. And so instead of using just "man," now not always, but a lot, in fact, especially some of the sermons I look at in the 15th century, it's sort of a, a consistent pattern. And so I was seeing these sermons, these medieval sermons long before feminism that were referencing men and women, and that they were also doing it in Bible verses. And so this is, you know, they would quote the Vulgate, the Latin, and then they would translate it for their audience. And when they translated it for the audience, they would often, where it said, you know, such as no man may come to the father except through me, no man or woman may come to the father except through me. And it was just very casual, clearly making sure that both the men and the women and the audience would understand it. And so I'm reading this at the same time that this, that the TNIV, I actually owned a TNIV that my husband bought for me. And I think that's also why I was paying attention because I start reading all of this pushback against the TNIV. And and what I found out is that the TNIV was intentionally written to bring in more gender inclusive language, not in terms of the gender of God, but in terms of the gender of people. So when the Greek was more generic, instead of saying brothers, the TNIV would say brothers and sisters. It's actually kind of a mild thing. The TNIV is not real radical. It's really funny to me. People got it so upset about it. But they did. And as I talk about in the book, World Magazine came out with these series of articles where they essentially called the TNIV the Stealth Bible and that it was going to bring it by bringing in this gender inclusive language, it was introducing feminism to evangelicals and that was going to completely destroy the church. this whole sort of another stealth move these wild articles yeah (laughs) and so the people who got and, and you see people like Wayne Grudem quoted in these and James Dobson quoted in these articles and they got so upset about the gender inclusive language that they got together and they plotted to do new version of the bible that would stand against the TNIV and they argued would stand for biblical values which means masculine language. And they got a hold of the RSV, they got permission to um, do a new version of the RSV, the revised standard version. And that became the English standard version. And it was created in direct response to the TNID, which then went out of print, you know, the TN, you can't find the TNID anymore, because it, the pushback was so great against it, that, that it, just the NIV, they incorporated some of the changes of the TNIV into the NIV now. And so the NIV 2012 reflects some of the TNIV changes, but they just took away that whole TNIV thing. And the ESV, the English standard version, then was born. And if you read about what they say in the introduction to it, they say that it is unapologetically complementarian. And so mm-hmm. the whole purpose of the ESV was to combat what they saw was this dangerous strain of feminism coming into the church.
0: That is wild. What year was that, do you remember?
1: This is between 1997 and 2002, when all of this is sort of taking place. And so it's kind of, I cover some of it, but there's a little bit more going on. There's also was some changes in Bible translation, sort of the governing council for Bible translations had emphasized gender-inclusive language. And this was also something that had gotten, you know, essentially this very conservative faction at the, the Evangelical Theological Society. I always have to think about what their name is, ETS, And this is the group that also founded the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Several of them also became founders of the Gospel Coalition. John Piper is in this group, Wayne Grudem, you know, James Dobson was on the front. You know, he sort of was the beginning of this he doesn't completely go forward with a lot of the other stuff but he's a voice in this too so it's all the usual suspects mm-hmm. um, who are all together and it's you funny keep me, up. you know yeah. I've been thinking about writing something on you know I mean it's such a small group of men it's really crazy to me it's such a small group of men with a
0: lot of power
1: with a lot of power and they're they are in all of these conversations in the 80s and 90s that mm-hmm. lead to this these harsher boundaries being brought, pushing women out of leadership and the surge in biblical
0: womanhood mm-hmm. uh, or ideas
1: about biblical womanhood.
0: Yeah. And I remember the debate about the gender inclusive language and it was very scathing what my memory of it was. Oh, it is. Scathing. It's scathing. Yeah. Yeah. Like they were just like, you know, slippery slope, you know, that kind of thing. Yep. And I just remember at the time just thinking, oh, I don't, what's the big deal? I don't get it. Like, what's the big deal? Like, like, that's how we talk in normal life. Like, who exactly. cares? Exactly. Um, and, but when I read your book and realized that is where the ESP came from, I was like, shit. <laughs> I
1: was like, Do you have an ESP? I have, I have ESP Bible. <laughs> you know, this, this poor, this poor guy on Twitter. And he was so kind. He's so nice. He just listened to a podcast. And he was like, I didn't realize that Bible translations influenced how people thought about women's roles in the church, and I was like, "You are so honest, and you are so right." Most people have no idea yes. how much Bible translations influence ideas about women in the church, and so that—and I think that's maybe why that chapter five of mine is drawing so much attention as well mm-hmm. as fire—is because it's, I. Put this out there for everyone to see. And I, you know, I'm trying to say, I'm not telling people to throw their ESVs out the window. I actually use multiple Bible translations. Right. The thing is, we got to be aware. Yes. All of our Bible translations are created by translators who come from a particular perspective. Yes. And yes. we just need to be aware of that, is what mm-hmm. I think. So, yeah. and then so like cherry
0: pick and slap a verse on someone that comes from one translation and be like, boom, this right. is what the Bible says. Like, no, no, that's no, no. exactly no, no. right. No, no, that's no. That's exactly no, no. right.
1: <laughs> well, and you know, what's also scary about it is that the ESV is so good at moving globally, and then a lot of translations in other parts of the world are being based on the ESV
0: mm-hmm. instead
1: of, and so it's that's actually the part that really scares me about the ESV.
0: Yeah, I have a giant ESV study Bible. And I stopped using it, not because of that, because I didn't know about that. But I got the study Bible thinking like for the study notes, obviously, and and thinking I'm going to learn about, you know, historical context or the original Greek or whatever. And in every one of these notes, instead of giving me that they're telling me what I should think about the passage. And I was just like, eh, that's not really what I was looking for. So I don't use it anymore. The church I used yeah. to work for bought it for me. So, <laughs> but I was like, I wonder if that also has something to do with it. Of just like, here's the Bible. This is how you should think about it, which is very reformed world, very PCA, just like, here's what it says. This is how you should think about it. Everyone's on the same page. Okay. Next. That's exactly- and that's kind of DMO. Yeah. So while we're on that subject, like this idea of biblical inerrancy, you did touch on that a little bit in your book. What is your opinion on that?
1: Yeah. So um, inerrancy has, I knew it was going to be a flashpoint. It's uh, been more of a flashpoint than I think I expected, but I think it's really raised attention to the fact that we misunderstand what is meant by inerrancy. And inerrancy, first of all, is not a biblical word. It is a word, it's a very modern word. It's a word that appears in really the 20th century. And while it claims to be talking about essentially believing the Bible, people who are inerrantists, we believe the Bible, the way, you know, what the Bible says, this is what happened. So this sort of literal understanding of it. The problem is that's not really how inerrancy operates. What inerrancy really means, it means that we believe the interpretation of how a certain group of people starting in the first part of the 20th century, who were mostly grounded at Princeton Theological Seminary and began to spread out and were represented a very conservative faction, really tied with the fundamentalist movement at the time, that we are not only going to believe the Bible, liter- but the way we interpret the little, literal belief of the Bible, that's the inerrant position. Hmm. So... If you are an inerrantist you believe that women belong under the authority of men and if you deny that then you are denying your belief in the Bible and this is the what happened in the 20th century with with biblical womanhood is that it's not only a practice that some people think is the way what the Bible intends but it is actually tied to whether or not you, are really Christian almost, Mm -hmm. or a faithful Christian. And so inerrancy is not so much about believing the Bible, it's about believing a particular interpretation of the Bible.
0: Mm -hmm. And, and so
1: anybody who steps out of those bounds, in fact, the first I think the first article Denny Burke wrote about me, I think the first one is where, you know, it was inerrancy that he essentially, he doesn't name me in it, he just links to the book. It was even before it came out. But he said, oh, look, here we have again, this liberal scholar who is not, you know, who is questioning belief in the Bible. This is the inerrancy slippery slope. And, you know, I'm, well, no, I'm actually not. I'm questioning what you say. (laughs)
0: Is the, is, is the interpretation is the, of the bible,
1: bible. yeah and so yeah. that's it we confuse inerrancy of the bible with inerrancy of our interpretation
0: talk about conspiracy it's on the other I side there is a, a concerted effort here okay so the reformation that was also another just like mine <laughs> and i remember thinking because i mean i'm single and i've you know been single my whole life and so I remember thinking when I, you know, studied Catholicism or had friends who are Catholic that the Catholics have a doctrine of singleness and like singleness is very much a part of the Catholic tradition and that does not exist in the evangelical church. And then when I read that part of your book, I was like, because they completely obliterated it, like it's like gone. And so I would love to just hear like briefly just what, how the Reformation changed the role of women.
1: So this is, this is another touchy part, I think, for evangelicals. I always have to preface it by saying, I do believe in Reformation theology. You know, here I stand as a Baptist, which clearly means I believe in Reformation theology. But at the same time, we just have to, we have to place the Reformation in its historical context. And what's happening with the Reformation is not just theology. It is a changing early modern world. And the early modern world, you know, it's moving from the medieval world to this, you know, this more, you know, the emphasis on work outside of the home, or actually in the beginning, really the work of these, work is becoming more structured, and we have the formation of guilds, which, while there were female guilds in the medieval world, they are becoming more and more run by men. I tell the story of what happens to beer. You know, it moves from women mostly doing it to men mostly doing it. And women get cut out of it along the way. And so this trend is going on. We also see more legal restrictions being put on wives and that less room allowed for women who aren't wives. And so this then gets, you know, what I say in the book is that Reformation theology kind of maps on, kind of takes this emphasis in scripture, what they see this emphasis in Paul on being a wife, and they kind of map it on to these things that are already happening in the, in the early modern world. And so, whereas in the medieval world, there is what I, you know, there's a loophole women can be preachers and teachers and leaders because as long as they're not married, they're not under the authority of their husband. And that's, you know, something that people say. And so, but in the early modern world with the Reformation, the best thing a woman can be is a wife and a married woman, which legally means she's always under a husband's authority. And so we see this marriage of European gender restrictions, these narrowing margins for women with Reformation theology. And what we come up with is this great overemphasis on being a wife, and being a wife comes with that legal, really, until late 20th century, when women can finally like start make getting loans without their husbands signing or you know buying cars without their husbands. I mean, I heard stories of the 80s of women yeah. not being able to buy cars without getting a co-signer, a male co-signer. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I have a friend who was actually a missionary and she was a single missionary and her father had to co-sign for her car for her because they wouldn't let her buy it. This is in the late 80s. Wow. So I know. So it's crazy. So we don't realize. So there's this this female, so being a wife, being female, this subordination is a part of this broader culture. And then we kind of just add the Bible verses onto it. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. Because so, it was more of like this reaction to yeah. Catholicism, right?
1: Yeah, sort of. You know, Catholicism does this too a little bit, where we start seeing more of an emphasis on wives also. But there is always this loophole. There, monasticism never goes away for Catholicism. Protestants try to revive monasticism a little bit. There's all these fun stories in the 19th century about women, ev- about evangelical women essentially taking on the role of deacon, deaconess, and living in these single-sex communities where they do, I mean, it's really, these, it's essentially, it's Protestant monasticism but even those, the emphasis is on, well, you do this until you get married, right? And you know, I mean, it's still they're underneath; they're not being the best. And this is something they even talk about. And so they're not being, they're not considered to be fully doing what God has called them to do in the same not way. Quite. Um, they're not They're not quite there. Quite. And so, I mean, and this, I think, you can probably speak to it. I mean, any woman in the in the evangelical church who remains single for whatever choices there's not space for her in the same way there is for married women with children. There's not She's space holding for married down. women. Yeah. Married women without children. That's another thing. Another there holding is, zone. Like, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's only when you are married and have children that you are fully female in many evangelical. Would you
0: agree ways. that it is not the same for men?
1: Oh yeah. Now, I mean, it kind of is interesting. It's, in some ways, it is the same for men in ministry. That's a whole nother story. You know, starting with the Reformation too, there's this emphasis that men need to be married. And that's mostly to safe keep the virginity <laughs> and the purity of the, the, other, women. Of the <laughs> other women. But you can still tell it today. I mean, I, you know, I hear stories all the time of men who are single and they're told that they won't be able to move up or get full-time ministry positions until they get married. Interesting. And so, I mean, there's this, we put marriage on a pedestal. So, most men it doesn't apply for, but clerical men in conservative evangelicalism, this is also a problem for them too. Oh
0: my gosh. Why do you think that so many women ascribe to the biblical womanhood and they ascribe to it so vehemently? Yeah. I got two screenshots of like Facebook screenshots from people this week of women just like condemning women who work outside the home, condemning, like women condemning women who oh. are in the pulpit. And so there's this vehemence
1: yeah.
0: from the women. What do you yes. think well
1: Two things. First, we really believe that this is God's best for women. I mean, this is it. We, we bought this hook, line and sinker that to be a biblical woman, to be what God has called us to be, that our best is to be a wife and a mother whose primary focus is on the home. And so even if we work, that's always should be a secondary focus. It never should be put before the needs of your home and your children. And so I think that's part of it is that women who even maybe feel attention for this in their lives, they feel like that if they question it, then it means that they're not being faithful believers. That there's something about them, that the sort of this idea with complementarity that, well, you know, changing diapers is a wonderful vocation. God created this for you. If you aren't happy with it, then something's wrong with you. And it's, you should be content with yourself, with your lot in life, which is the same thing that was told to slaves. I could talk about that a lot. It's very interesting. That's also the same language that's used in India with the caste system. So, I mean, if you want to go out and think anyway, but there we are. But it's so that something's not wrong with you. And of course, what they forget to put on there is that if men change diapers, that is that's considered to be demeaning to them. So it's like, don't you see that? You know, why is it demeaning to you to do it? But it's the only thing that women can do. And I've changed a lot of diapers in my life. I So anyway, but so that's one of them is that they believe that it's really true. And they believe if they question it that there's something wrong with them, which you expressed and I felt. I think the other reason is that, in fact, this is what that article I read today on the Gospel Coalition um, website, is that it emphasizes that different, our differences in our bodies, that this literally makes us, you know, designed for these separate, designed for these separate roles, like, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Service, it, menial roles. Yeah, it, but it, you know, they say that it's, they say that it's all equal in there and that this is kind of, this is what women are supposed to do. This is your identity. And so a lot of women have grown up, you know, this is what they saw their moms do. This is what they saw that their grandmothers do. This was put in them and they see women, who step outside of those lines as a threat to their identity. And so, I mean, you can kind of think about the whole Hillary Clinton thing when everybody sent her baked cookie, you know, the first time when she, I don't remember even what she said. I was young when all that happened, but I remember, you know, the big backlash, it's like she was demeaning domestic work. Because she wasn't
0: focusing on it.
1: Right. Well, yeah, she said something, too, that was, you know, the part of her problem was she said things publicly that she probably shouldn't have said. So she said something that set people off, and they all sent her baked cookies in the mail. But sort of, it's this idea that if you do something outside of the domestic sphere or emphasize something out of the domestic sphere, you're demeaning the identity of women within the domestic sphere. Ah. This is something, yeah, this is something that even I have had to deal you with know, because I'm like, look, I'm not telling you to go to work. I am not tell. I mean, we don't live in an economy. The American economy is not built in a way that favors women working. It's hard. I mean, I did it and it's hard. A lot of women simply do not have the ability, you know, the way their families are structured to really do it. Some of them don't really want to do it. And that's fine with me. I understand that. So it's not saying you can't do it. It's just saying that you don't do it because this is what you think you're supposed to do. And
0: your condition.
1: Right. It's you do it because this is the choice you've made and it works best for your family and works best for the kids, and you and your husband, y'all, decided to do it this way. That's fine. You do whatever you want to do. You just can't say this is the only thing that God has called women to, or this is the best thing that God has called women to. And you're not
0: fully woman if you're not doing it. Right.
1: So I think it threatens identity. I think it threatens women's identity. And then we also believe it's biblically true. And so we fight to protect our identity, and we fight to not be heretics.
0: Thank you for breaking that down. I really appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about just a little bit about your personal shift on this and a little bit about your journey.
1: So when I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, I grew up at a time when these gendered roles were becoming more enshrined, you know, sort of like my earliest memories are of James Dobson. And James Dobson wasn't really espousing what we would consider to be complementarianism. I would say he's espousing the forerunner. You know, he's laying the groundwork for what becomes complementarianism. And he is also laying the groundwork for women, Christian women's primary role to be the house and to be taking care of children. He's actually very big on women should not work. And so some of that is sort of in the background. By the time I got through high school, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood had been written. And Wayne Grudem's systematic theology was in progress. I think he was publishing articles on it. It's published in the early 2000s. But nonetheless, these ideas that are enshrining that women's roles are divinely ordained to be under male leadership, this has become normative. And because it was such a natural extension from James Dobson's teachings, it didn't really seem a disconnect. I think a lot of people didn't really see. They were like, oh, of course, this is what Christians do. Because we already have the Christian household. Things work best. So, yeah, women are divinely called to do this. This makes perfect sense. So I didn't really see a reason. I mean, this was part of the world in which I lived. And even though I experienced the bad side of it uh, during this time, The explanation was, is that these are people doing bad things with something good, which is still the explanation you see now. So, and I accepted that at the time, that this is not a honest, this is not a godly interpretation of what's supposed to happen. So it really wasn't until I got into my graduate studies, and I actually still, I still kind of remember the moment. And I talk about it a little bit in my book, but I was in grad school at the time that the Patterson's were ruling Southeastern Baptist, where my husband was in school, and they were also writing, you know, the fight was beginning for the 2000, the nights between 1998 and 2000, there's a lot of changes that happened to the Baptist faith and message. The changes started earlier in the 80s, but nonetheless, it sort of kind of all comes together in the late 90s. And so all of this is kind of going on and something about it had been in the news. I don't remember exactly what, but Dorothy Patterson had done something and she was in the news And my seminar, my women's studies seminar, we were talking about Dorothy Patterson. And it suddenly struck me. I was like, what Dorothy Patterson is arguing for female submission is exactly the same as the condition of women in non-Christian parts of the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just kind of had this. I was like, whoa. (laughs) And I started that, I think, is when I really started questioning it where I was like, because I had things that bothered me about it, but I mostly said, these are people not doing it right. If you really did it right, and if you really had, you know, because my husband, of course, is, you know, even as we move through this, our relationship and the way we relate to each other has really never changed. So we would be one of those people, one of those couples that Russell Moore would complain about that maybe have accepted complementarianism, but functioned egalitarian. (laughs) You know, know, that's what he complains about. So we kind of functioned like that. So there wasn't, I didn't really have anything in my marriage that was, you know, anyway. Causing
0: difficulties for you. Yeah,
1: it didn't cause any difficulties. So it was just really when I started seeing how much the Christian idea of gender roles looked just like the non-Christian world, that Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to think harder about this. Yeah. And that yeah. was so that was really where it began. It took a long time for me to finally kind of come and what I had to crawl out from was number 1 am I a heretic? Yes. <laughs> and you know, you know, sort of that sort of thing. And number 2 is this what is you know what does this mean if I no longer believe this does it mean that it's dangerous? Can I still continue to support, does it really matter? And at first I was like, I don't believe it anymore, but I don't know if it matters that much,
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but the
1: evidence just started becoming, and really it was my work with teenage girls and, and my work with teenage girls where Mm -hmm. I saw them internalizing these messages. And as I also knew a whole lot about sexual abuse and how all of these things started Mm -hmm. and I saw the what the impact that these ideas had on young women. And I began to put Mm -hmm. two and two together.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Would you say then that this is not a take it or leave it subject?
1: So I'll dance around that a little bit. Um, (laughs) For me, it's no longer a take it or leave it subject. I have come where I'm like I can't, I cannot perpetuate a system that is dangerous to women and that hurts the gospel. However, I also understand women who have no choice right now.
0: They, mm-hmm.
1: You know, they may not be able to get out of marriages. They may not be able to change their husband's mind. They may not be able to get out of churches. I understand those reasons. I also understand women who are perfectly content. And their role, you know, they haven't ever had, and so I understand why they wouldn't move on. It doesn't rub them.
0: They're the ideal.
1: And I'm not going to say they're not Christian. I mean, I think that's the thing. So I'm not, I just want them to realize that I'm a faithful Christian too. Yes. And that's really my rubbing point. And that's why the subtitle of the book is how the subjugation of women became gospel truth. Yes. Um, Because that's what I really want to hit home is that you can be a faithful Christian and not accept complementarianism. So that is, that's my take it or leave it. Yeah, uh, no, that's you, awesome. You can't walk away, yeah, so.
0: Yeah, what is, if you had like one thing that you hope people walk away with when they read your book, what is something you're hoping for?
1: Well, I'm, for one thing, I'm hoping that they realize that they can be faithful Christians and not believe, that complementarianism is their only option. I also just wanna give women hope. I think there are so many women and I've heard from so many of them who have thought that something is wrong with them and who worry about raising their daughters up in what they have begun to see as this very oppressive culture. You know, I mean, this was another disconnect I had when I realized that I have a son and a daughter and I realized that my son was going to be taught that there was something innately about him that made him able to teach and lead in a way my daughter could not. And I thought, that's dangerous. That is dangerous to teach a 13-year-old boy that there is something innately about him that makes him able to teach where his mother cannot or his sister cannot. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give women in those situations, I want to give them hope for a better way. And, you know, and even maybe just a hope that they can introduce their children to a different path that does not diminish the authority of scripture and does not diminish the gospel of Jesus.
0: I remember a friend of mine at a church that I worked for, and she wasn't a huge uh, complementarian fan, but she liked the community at the church. She liked the pastor and all that. And then one day her, I think it was her daughter was nine. And she said, why are only men on the stage? Why are there only men preaching? And she was just like, I can't raise my daughter here. That's I can't exactly send right. this message to her. And so she left. And I just, I appreciate that so much because she was just like, that is not what I want to send to my daughter, the message that I want to send to my daughter. And yeah, it does, it does become a pretty, when you get the yeah. kids involved.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And I carry a lot of guilt. From all of the teenage girls that I taught for years and I didn't I stayed silent on this and I I worry about the impact that it had on them
0: well they know about your book
1: they do and in fact we've heard from some of them that are like well that's what happened Some of them have reached out to me and they're like, can we go have coffee? Yes, <laughs> just <laughs> I'm like, yeah. So anyway, so we, I've been Is that about over.
0: like the church that you had to leave? The
1: church that we had? Yes. A lot of it is that, you know. And I they mean, didn't guess,
0: know that this is why you left.
1: They didn't. Yes. Yeah, they didn't know. Some of them suspected that they didn't know. And so this has put pieces together. I mean, as I said, we tried really hard to gloss details and not, we weren't going after a church. We were right. going after a system. And so anyway, but people who know, know yes. they know the church. I can't do you. anything about that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm really glad that you're getting to have those conversations. I'm really glad that you wrote the book. I'm really glad thank to you, with my listeners. Is there anything else that you would like to add as we wrap up?
1: No, I just want to say thank you for talking with me. This has been a really fun conversation. I almost forgot we were doing a podcast. So <laughs> that's so great. That's yeah. So
0: good. It's that's great. what I want it to be. Whatever we
1: probably means I said things that I shouldn't have said, but who knows?
0: <laughs> Well, if you do remember anything and you're like, no. hey, I want to cut it.
1: I'm kidding. I'm shoot kidding.
0: me an email. I think you have my email.
1: Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm not. <laughs> I don't really worry about it too much.
0: <laughs> Your book, I mean you you can't get You can't get. I said it all. Yeah, pretty much. It can't get much worse than
1: that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I I learned so
0: much from the book, and I have already told many people about it. It has millions of underlines, so probably one of the most impactful books that I've read this year, probably. So, well,
1: thank you very much.
0: Really appreciate it, and good luck.
1: Thanks. Yes. Thank you. I need that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting TearsOfEden.org slash support. All donations are tax-deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Catherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.